This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is desperately trying to get through the firehose of earnings. And when I say is and we, I'm talking about myself, Scott Phillips, and him, Andrew Page, the managing director, the founder, the chief cook and bottle washer at strawman.com. How are you, mate? I'm very well. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. Earnings has hit with a vengeance, mate. The last two or three days in particular, uh, I've signed up to a service that emails me earnings when they kind of drop and only the ones like we cover actually and still some days they just drop in and it's ping, 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 ping on my email. It's it's like, oh God, here we go. It's been a busy, busy week, hasn't it? Yeah, it all all comes at once, particularly after sort of like the uh, Christmas sort of New Year period where it's just such a dearth of any (laughs) kind of news, which as I've said before is often a pretty good thing, but then it just, it all comes at once. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, exactly. We've had so many earnings this week, mate, is all over the place. We'll probably spend a decent chunk of this podcast just talking through some of the bigger companies, some of the more widely held stocks, but the stuff that's interesting and kind of worth chatting about. And, And I guess- you know, we want to help, obviously, people who own these companies understand what the earnings might have meant for them, but also to, to some degree, trying to just break down the way to think about some of this stuff. Mm. And I want to start, mate, with Fortescue Metals. I own shares for full disclosure. In fact, I own shares of some of the companies we're going to talk about, including Fortescue. We'll go through them one by one. Um, what I, I, I've been I've been doing a bit of media regularly, but last couple of days, and twice I've been asked, oh, well, Fortescue profits are down. What's going on there? I thought the iron ore price was high. And it's a very, very, very reasonable question. But I just thought it was worth taking a, a bit of a step back because the Fortescue numbers, I think the shares fell 2.5% when the earnings were unveiled. Uh, they weren't anywhere near as good as they were this time last year. If you followed the story... It's just kind of a big yawn, right? It's like, well, what else did you expect? I mean, again, people are asking you not no no criticism of them. They're you know not necessarily business journos, and they're just saying, "Hey, dude, that's down a lot." That seems surprising to me. Um, I, so, uh, you know, if you look at I, I pull up the iron ore price chart, and it is an absolute roller coaster, right? We talked about this um, when I bought some shares. I think it was, must have been it was October last year, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw the iron ore price up close to a two hundred bucks ish a ton. It might have even been over that for a while in the first half of last year. Mm. And then it fell really meaningfully. And that was kind of the point I bought my shares and we talked about it at the time. And now they're back up again to almost the level they were in June. And people are saying, well, hang on, the iron ore price is still high. What gives? Mm. What does give? Well, the market's not as silly as we often like to make it out to be, <laughs> is, is the, the simple answer. So, of right. course, these, these numbers reflect what has happened when you buy shares today, you're exposing yourself to what will happen in the future. Yep. So that that it, it, as, as you've said previously, it, it's more about how the results, good or bad, line up with what the market was previously expecting. Mm. And if the market is being reasonably rational, it's it's taking these latest results to sort of help inform its view of the future. Mm. And I, I think that one of the and we've we've talked about this many times when it comes to sort of commodity exposed companies, they've got no control on the cost of, of their product. You know, Apple can set the price of an iPhone. <laughs> Fortescue Metals does yep, not yep. set the price of iron ore. So it's it's right. going to move around. We also know that when prices are very high, it stimulates what they call a very strong supply side response. It becomes very appealing for potential players in this space to to start exploring, finding and exporting more, which which means that there's more supply comes on. And you know, you remember your high school economics, you'll know that when supply even when demand is high, 
when supply increases, that pushes prices down. Yeah. And and there's just there was just no expectation whatsoever that that these prices were going to remain at these really really elevated levels. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it, I think it all makes all makes perfect sense what the market did. It does. It does. It's also worth saying that you know the. It's easy to look at points in time and say, "Hang on, last June the price was 150 bucks a ton. Today the price is 150 bucks a ton. Why did profits go down?" Mm. The answer is, well, they went. The price went down a lot in the into the intervening period, right? They're, yep. they're collecting cash. They're selling iron ore literally daily, taking the global price at whatever point they sell that iron ore. Some it's going to have been sold at 90 bucks a ton. Some at 150. Um, the weighted average price of that will be somewhere in between, and that's exactly why, right? As you said, no surprise. But just worth thinking about that. And the other thing I, I we kind of know commodity companies are funny. You know the commodity price during the during the half almost daily. Not you don't have to take account of it, but you kind of know what's going on. Mm. They also release their volume numbers much earlier than their um, than their their financials. So you you kind of you know the price in the market. You know their volumes. You can kind of do the maths, and that's I think why even though the profit did fall, shares went out a little bit. Um, I'll talk to that in a second, uh, but. It was just one of those situations where no one really should have been surprised that the price was public knowledge. The, the volumes had been public knowledge. You can kind of do relatively straight, simplistic maths and kind of go, eh, it feels up or it feels down. Maybe the amount to which if you really want to calculate it, you've got to do a bit of work, but it was, it, no one should have been surprised by this. What I will what I will say though, mate, is Fortescue talked about inflation and we're going to talk about that a lot this year, I have a feeling. Um, probably not overdo it, but... They talk about you know labor cost inflation, some of their other supply costs. Fortescue is really lucky. Their cash cost is fifteen or sixteen dollars a ton. They are let's let's call it for my, make my other math easy. hundred bucks a ton they're selling it for. It's more than that now, but let's just mm. use those numbers. Even hundred bucks a ton, their gross margins are north of eighty percent. Mm. Now, if your cash cost goes up twenty percent, which is not going to happen, if it did, it goes up from sixteen dollars to nineteen dollars, and you're still selling it for a hundred. That's a that's a very 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 nice problem to have. Yeah. Um, not a great problem. You don't want to have it, of course. Uh, but you know, compare that to a retailer that has net margins of four, five, six, seven percent. Mm. If their costs go up by three or four percent, that's going to halve their net margins. Yeah. And so it's a really different story. And Fortescue, they're right to say the costs are going up, and that is potentially an issue. As I said, I do, I do struggle to feel super, even though I own shares. I struggle to feel really sorry for a business with 80% margin saying, our costs are up bits like, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't really care, right? Uh, price is going to have much more of an impact. But, it, you know, it is worth thinking about that impact on the rest of the country. We talked about Ansel and Amcor, I think, last week and their issues with, um, maybe the week before, their issues with trying to pass on those increasing costs. That's the sort of stuff that really does start to hurt you. It's the benefit too of high margins, right? Mm-hmm. It is, uh, and well, I'll I'll give you a alternate perspective. I think oh, some sometimes very low margin companies can be interesting if okay. if you know Maybe well. Be, because let's say you are on a two percent net margin and you manage to improve, you know, take out some costs or whatever. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Going from a two percent margin to a three percent margin is huge. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a fifty percent increase in at the, at the assuming the same sales. Yes, it's a fifty percent increase in, in profit, right? So if you're if you're on a fifty percent margin, you go up by a percent again. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't make a difference. So just <laughs> right. you know, just I, I, I totally. I mean, it's a it's a it's a secondary point, but yeah, high, yeah. I'll, I'll I will always prefer high margin companies because yeah. there is a lot more wiggle room. Just that being said, though, it can it can be quite interesting. And then if, mm-hmm. if you feel as though there's, we, we focus a lot on sales, um, yep. but but those margins are just so important. It's really worth understanding for a yep. business what they are, what drives them, and in what direction you could reasonably expect them to go. Not 
you know, over the short term because things are going to fluctuate. But sort of more materially over the long term, the long term, you 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 can get some potential opportunities. I did quite well back with API back in the day. It was exactly mm-hmm. that really low margin business, but they were just making some changes. I won't go into the the, the details of it, but yeah. but you know, so they reported a bit of an in- increase in revenue, but the profit just exploded and the market went what? And it's exactly that story. So it's mm-hmm. sort of I don't know, just a, just a slightly different take on it. I, I mean, I love that. Actually, I want to I take that tangent, actually, if you don't mind, because it's a really worthwhile conversation to have. I So two, I've got two, two questions, two thoughts. First is that that element of, I th- I completely agree with you, the, the business that is a low-margin business, and, and there's two ways to be low-margin. Either it can be a really tough industry like retail, or it can have just short-term problems. Either of those tend to be attractive kind of potential hunting grounds. You've got to be careful because if the 2% margin becomes a 1% margin, you lose half your value. So, you know, go, it can go from 2 to 3, it can go from 2 to 1. Yeah. Um, you've, got to be, you've got to have a reasonably good sense that it's doable. But I have to say, Woolies is a great example of this. They, they had literally for a while world-leading margins, quite literally. There was no, even, even Walmart, there was no more profitable retailer in, as, a, as a percentage, so I can't remember the numbers were now six or seven or eight percent, something like that, yeah, for was, a grocery retailer. Yeah, yep. um, and and on one hand, you say, and this is interesting, you either say, wow, what an amazing retailer doing something great, or you say, oh, that's not going to last. Mm. And it could have been either, right? And again, this is we want to be careful about looking backwards and, and, and assuming that we knew. But it did seem remarkably unlikely that a hyper-competitive industry like groceries, they weren't doing anything that different or that... Um, uh, you know, specific to them, uh, they couldn't either be copied or replicated or just simply things go back to normal. And that's when Woolly Shares went from, I'll say, $33, $35 down to about 20 mm. when they all of a sudden, that, that those margins didn't didn't continue. <laughs> they, yeah. they managed to screw a few things up, bit of hubris, bit of probably overcharging. They let Coles get under their guard and start the, the, the milk price war, the bread price war. They literally was just like, well, too profitable. And sometimes, to use the Jeff Bezos-ism, your margin is my opportunity. You know, you can get to a point where it's nice to have high margins, but if you're banking that, uh, you've got to make sure they're sustainable, right? Well, I'm sure uh, a certain German retailer took uh, a great deal of interest and attention towards the, the margins that were there. Right. And, and they didn't think oh, great, we can go into this market and get these kinds of margins. They thought, no, <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. we can get into this margin, market, take much lower margins yeah. and as a consequence to get a get a fair chunk of market share. And that, I think that's been a big, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think that's actually a big part of, of what's happened with the big retailers. And you've also got this really interesting competitive dynamic, even if you take Aldi and perhaps Costco and some of these other ones out, where it's mm-hmm. sort of, these high margins sort of are maintained as long as there's some unspoken truce. <laughs> now, I would yes, never, yes. I would never allege collusion or anything like that. I'm not Please going don't. to do that. <laughs> and I, know, I actually don't think there is any sort of grand conspiracy there. Yeah, but I think no, both no. they're very smart operators here, and they know that. Well, again, it's an unspoken kind of truce that we won't go too hard on 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 prices because. Mm. It's a race to the bottom, and we're both we're both going to lose. We might take some market share, but we're both going to be worse off if we fight that. So for the longest of times, Coles and Woolies were just sort of happy in this kind of arrangement. And yep. yeah, so but but as you say, that that's the, that's the key question is you you've got to have one view on on what their sales are going to be, but then can they sort of maintain this? And their mm-hmm. their net profit margin at this point in time is about two point six percent in the last full year. Yeah. You know, in twenty sixteen it was almost five percent. So it's sort of that's a that's a big impact. Um yeah, and worth paying attention to. It makes a huge difference. Uh and I think that's, you know, which which way you go with this um 
you've got to be careful because, you know, as I said, low margin can be an opportunity, high margins can be an opportunity. So let me, let me go down that path, mate. I, I like high margin businesses as well, kind of. And, and, and let me explain kind of what I mean by that. I, I've said before that I think the, the love of tech businesses that somehow they are obviously going to do better, blah, 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 was as much about the fact they were simply too cheap in the past. So share price-wise, the fact that Amazon's gone from, I own shares, from nine to 3,000 is absolutely part of their growth story and part of the fa- part of the, partly because the market simply underestimated their ability to grow. Mm. Because if the market had properly priced this growth, the shares would have been $1,000 rather than $9 and the growth since then would have been fine and nice and okay, but not the stonking amount of growth. Part of it, the story is just the market didn't believe or didn't know Amazon would do so well. Mm. And I'm not criticizing it for knowing that. I didn't buy shares at $9 either. So I, I, no criticism, I, I didn't see it. Um, but we kind of say, oh, tech is great. It's going to grow better because X, Y, Z. And, and from a share price perspective, it's only if the market's undervaluing it in the past or now looking forward, right? If, if every tech company now is at full value, the, the outperformance of buy tech, there's nothing inherent about it, I guess is my point. Mm-hmm. And when I come to think about gross margins, I kind of think the same thing, mate. Like I, 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 I can't, wish I knew who this was. Someone said years ago, you got to be careful not to pay twice for quality. Mm-hmm. And the point was that if you got a business with high margins or high returns on equity, I think was the conversation. But I wanted the value of investing guys. Um, those high margins, those high returns on equity are already in the profitability. It, 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 that's what's delivered today's profit, right? Mm-hmm. The fact they got high margins means today's profit's higher than it would otherwise be. Great, great return on equity means profit is already very high. Unless that improves moving forward, it's the, it's the delta, the change any of these things that actually moves the share price, not the fact they continue to be high. Yeah. And so I, I, I just... Maybe I'm being contrarian for the sake of it, but when I see, you know, a high margin is great. Well, kind of. They, they tend to be more defensible businesses, hopefully, although as we just talked about, Woolies had high margins, which actually invited competition rather than protecting it from mm. competition. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm just I'm mindful that we have heuristics about. We'll talk about heuristics in a minute about another company in a second. I won't give that away just yet, but stay tuned. Um, but the, the kind of the, the the rule of thumb that gross high gross margins are good or better or something, they kind of are. But if they're already delivering a result, paying twice for those could actually be a mistake. Yes. Your thoughts? Yep. yep. No, I, I 100% agree. So I, I think I think part of the huge opportunity uh, over the last 15 mm. years in tech was uh, a, a, a bit of a misunderstanding of what you're talking about, but also the, the nature of those businesses in, in how they sort of scale. So maybe the gross margins were very high. So they they deliver a product and it costs them this much to, to deliver. But then they've got this huge architecture underneath all of that just in terms of their fixed costs. But the beauty of that is, is that in theory, for the best businesses, those fixed costs don't tend to rise much. So although your gross margin might not change or even maybe even go down a little bit, you still get this big increasing margin at the bottom line. Some really wonderful examples of that. But you're right. The market sort of the market was late, I think, slow in realizing that. But then now it's realized, and so you've got to be careful. The other the other thing, of course, is is again, as you say, high margins attract competition. So it's really only and and if you're sort of first in a space, and you've got it all open to yourself, yep. and you're able, to, and that's fantastic. But what matters more is what 
what Buffett calls moats, these sustainable yeah. competitive advantages, yeah. Yeah. so that you can continue. To, so when someone else comes into the space, they just can't they just can't capture any market share, even if they do have a lower price, because there's either huge IP, massive brand loyalty, strong network effects. I mean, choose choose mm-hmm. your preferred mm-hmm. uh, competitive advantage. And again, I, I mentioned Apple before. That that's that's what big part of, of the secret of their success. You know, there's 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 no shortage of manu- mobile phone manufacturers and computer players out there, but but there's something special. There's a bit of a secret sauce there that means that they can continue to charge much higher prices and enjoy much higher margins. So for me, it's for me, it's it's absolutely right for investors to pay attention to these high margins. I think, yep, they, that's really great. But the more important thing is what characteristics of the business will enable them to sustain that in the face of increasing competition. Because when you're out there making a fortune with with a, with a high margin operation you are it is red to a bull you know every other <laughs> person out there is going to come That's in right exactly and, yeah. and they're going to yeah. wow and then it's again it's the game, think of it from a game theory perspective yep. wow they they they're making out like bandits on this 80% gross margin well we we'd, mm-hmm. we'd still be insanely profitable at 70% so let's do that i'll, I'll, I'll take 40 yeah, yeah exactly. someone oh well i'll take yeah, 40 yeah, and it just yeah. it keeps going down and down and down and down so yep. So, so you need to have a business that has high switching costs, you know, high retention, whatever it happens mm. to be, to ensure that 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 um, that advantage isn't eroded over time. Because it's 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 a key. It's not a bug. It's a key feature of capitalism. Yeah, right? Exactly. It's supposed to work, right? That's how when, it's when meant it to work. work. That's actually a problem, right? When you when a company can sustain high margins for extended periods of time, you know, arguably, and I mean, you can argue about you know consumer preferences and we should give people freedom and that kind of stuff. But yeah, there should there should be. And even, even to your point about Apple, mate, I think that's right. But the reverse is also true, right? Those other companies that have said, well, we will find a place in the market by being cheaper. Mm. Doesn't necessarily hurt Apple, but it, it's that yeah. idea of how do we how do we participate? Can we can we be Apple? No, let's not. Let's be the opposite of Apple. Let's be cheap and you know attractive enough at a, at a value proposition perspective that does give us a place in the market. That's almost the point, right? I used to work in the vitamin business. I worked for Blackmores and that was that was absolutely true for Blackmores. They had some great margins and really high brand value. Mm. Others would come in and just say Swiss was the the competitor at the time. They turned up and said, "Well, we'll do it for you know." Whatever the price was, two thirds of the price because mm. we can, yeah. and we don't need to make a hundred million. We'll be happy with twenty million. Okay, yeah. well, why wouldn't you, right? It just the, the numbers are so big, particularly in those categories, um, that it makes obvious sense to say, well, we'll look for it. And if you know, if I was starting a business tomorrow, and I had some a decent cash cushion or some sort of you know backer of some description, that's exactly what I'd be looking for. Yeah, where are the dominant high margin players? We're a different model. And this, again, think about all these, Aldi, you mentioned. Think about, and, and again, the, the airlines were pretty smart. They did it themselves. But think about Jetstar and, and or even Virgin. What did Virgin do? It said, well, Qantas and Ansett are the big bloated, high fare, lots of business class, whatever. What if we did single aircraft, super low prices, made it, now they've changed the model again since then, but you know they, they've, they've done exactly that, finding mm. a, a different proposition. And I just think I, I like... I said, I like high margins. I just, and and this is kind of articles of faith, right? And it is the exception that proves the rule. So some high margin businesses like Apple, as you say, continue to grow, grow value for years. And they are absolutely, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that Apple's in danger anytime soon. But if you think about the sorts of companies that we say, we like those because they're high margin businesses. I'm always, half my thought is, well, that seems unsustainable to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only a matter of time until someone comes and fixes it. And then you end up in the innovator's dilemma where if you're Blackmore's, and I'm not giving it away, it was many years ago and I can't even speak for the company as a whole. But you ask yourself, well, hang on, these guys are, these guys are taking market share away from us. 
But to, to stop that, I'm going to drop my prices to get the, to get that. So how much yeah. margin do I give away mm. to compete with those guys? Um, the um, uh, Tyro payments, the FPOS terminal provider, yep. right? They're about half the price of the big banks. Yep. And the big banks have just let Tyro do its thing. Why? Because it's easier to do that <laughs> rather than actually losing money on or, or reducing margin on all of your business. Okay, let's say Tyro gets to 5 or 10 or 15%. Well, that kind of sucks. But if I have to drop my prices by half to compete, then my it's price is the worse. Bottom. Yep. Right, exactly. And you've got to try and find a place that works in the market. So just, so I, just be careful of that. Yeah, I, I think someone told me years ago, which is so true, I think whenever you're in, whatever industry you're in, you've got to choose at what end of the spectrum you're going to operate. Yeah. You either want to be the person who says, we are bargain basement, ultra low cost, no frills, yep. and that we're going to, it's going to it, it, it compete aggressively on low prices and we are going to run on the smell of an oily rag. Yeah. Or you say that we are going to be at the other end of the spectrum, which we are all going to be about uh, uh, brand and this kind of stuff where we're, we're mm. deliberately not going to fight in that space. We are going to be very, very high made. We're going to cater to a completely different part of the market. Right. Where you don't want to be is in between because- because then you then you're attacked from both sides. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You, you kind of Absolutely. not you're not kind of this business yeah. that that can demand these high price because you're still trying to compete a bit on price, but you're never going to be as cheap as the the ultra cheap guys. You're never going to have as much premium as as mm. the as the mm. ultra mm. premium guys. And and you see some retailers doing this um, exceptionally well. I mean, you know, JB Hi-Fi is a good example of this. Their store layout is this very. A lot of thought and science goes into this, by the way. But but there's not fancy shelves and the store fit-outs aren't expensive. Yeah, yeah, they've, yeah. Ju- they've just relentlessly focused on this really hyper-efficient kind of business model. Mm-hmm. And just compl- – remember you used to at one stage you might even go to – Myers or whatever to, to the electrical department to buy. Just there's no way that they could they 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 could compete with what what JB Hi-Fi is doing. And mm-hmm. JB Hi-Fi is not going to start making their stores more more premium and and, and looking better. And because they know exactly right, right. what part yep, of the where spectrum yes, where they yes, want to exactly. play on. So I think exactly. a good part of it as well is is looking at at a management team that's got a very clear articulated strategy to say no no, no this mm-hmm. is. This is the, the the part that we're going to pay uh, uh, to play on, um, and and so and so if you are going to be a high uh, try and chase those high margins, your focus, yes, obviously keep control of your costs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but do whatever you can to make sure that you've got the best product, the best brand, the best whatever that you can you can continue to charge well above your competitors and unapologetically so. Yeah, you know, exactly, we, exactly. you know, it's not like oh, yeah. where someone comes, oh, but it's it's cheaper if I go here. It's like fine, go there. You know, if you if you walk into a Rolls Royce dealer and say, "How much is that car?" The answer is more than you can afford. <laughs> if, you, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. If exactly, you have exactly. to ask, you can't afford it. And 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 Rolls Royce know this, right? Yes, so they, exactly. They, exactly. They, could they sell more cars if they started yep. lowering their prices and the rest of it? Yes, they could. Would that be a sensible business decision? Absolutely not. They know yes. exactly yes. where they sit on the spectrum, and they they relentlessly prosecute that. So, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's a big spectrum between Rolls Royce and say, what are the cheap cars? Is Kia still cheap? It used to be. I think it's kind of gone up market a little bit. But whatever. I, I only drive a Rolls, mate. I don't. I don't know what happens. <laughs> really if, the exactly. <laughs> if I have to ask, I haven't bought a Kia for a while. Um, but it's a big spectrum. But but actually, that's. It. I, I want to stay with the cars for a second. I'll end up somewhere else. But uh, that's the Holden Ford problem. Yeah. Right. They they were in a market where they couldn't charge enough. They couldn't scale their costs enough because they had a small domestic market. 
Mm. And so you literally get caught in the middle of nowhere. You're not as premium as the Audis, BMWs, Rolls, Bentleys, whatever else is up there, mm. Mercedes. You're not as cheap as the Kias, Hyundais. Toyota. Um, yeah. And even some of the imported you know, you know, Holdens and, and Fords because mm. you know, they can make them in Thailand or wherever they're making them. Um, admittedly, some of the Holdens end up being imported as well. But you're kind of stuck in between. The, the Commodore and the Falcon, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the cheapest. It's not the best. It's not mm. the most fuel efficient. It's not the... And so you kind of went, well, what's the need for this car anymore? And the yeah. market decided for them, actually, no, there, there is no need. We're done. Yeah. And it's a really just it's a really important reminder. The other one for me is Maya, and this is this is I, I, and DJs, and I want to kind of blow this out a little bit because even the indirect competitors become a problem. I've said this before, mm. but if you look at, um, uh, you know what what killed Maya and DJs actually wasn't other department stores doing it better. What happened was the department store used to be the place you'd go to get one of everything, mm. and then Westfield became that. Yeah. <laughs> they 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 weren't they weren't beaten by another retailer. They were beaten by a landlord. Yeah, you know, I, I used to go. I've said this before. I used to go to town with my my nana. We go into the Grace Brothers at Broadway in Sydney. You call, you say go into town. You get it, get dressed up. You jump on the bus. You go to she was in the suburbs. You go to the um, God you Gerald. Go to, yeah, I know. <laughs> Tell me about it. You, you go to you go to Broadway uh, and you get you know pants and shoes and you have food there. That was the prototype for the shopping centre. Yeah. Westfield just went. Hey, what if we just what if we just expand this thing? Yeah. And so all of a sudden, yes, DJs and I are in shopping centres, but mm. you want a dress? Go to the three or four or five or seven or eight dress shops. Mm. You want some cosmetics? Well, there's seven of those. You want some men's shoes? Well, there's four of those. Mm. Why are we going to Myra anymore? Yeah. And and literally, it was, so it wasn't even necessarily a, another retailer doing it better. It was just the model changed, and and just literally Westfield and, and their ilk took the business of everything in one spot away from the department stores. Yeah. And again, is that margin? Kind of, yeah, but it's also scale and other things. So just being mindful of, of competitive pressures is a big one. Yeah, it, it's, 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 it, is, it, is, it is really significant. It's not enough. I think too many of us as investors, we, we take a first level look at things and we'll sort of say, oh, this is an area that's, that's kind of growing. And that's a really great place to start. But you've also got to ask, well, what are the competitive dynamics like in that place? Where, where, where are the sources of advantage that, that can be sustained? Who are the companies who are really overtly aware of that and prosecuting mm. a very deliberate strategy on these are these yeah. are these are much more difficult questions to ask, but these are the right questions to ask. Yes. And if it sounds like a bit of hard work, well it is. But that's 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 the benefit of, of putting in some effort and work because if you find those, they can be insanely profitable. We talked before about, you know, investing in structural change because, you know, that that they're huge sources of opportunity where um, uh, these these new vistas just open right up through new ways of doing business, new ways of approaching things. And generally speaking, the the incumbents are just caught flat footed, and they either don't rec- they sort of first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, <laughs> whatever whatever the Gandhi saying is like there, copy you or whatever it is, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, they call, yeah. you know. So it's 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 um, I spend a lot of time thinking about that with my businesses. It's very and I've done this. I made a lot of mistakes in the past. You kind of look historically at a business that's going pretty well, and you go, "Oh, that's yeah. great," and it's really natural just to sort of extrapolate that off into infinity. <laughs> exactly. Not, not realizing that, well, yeah. actually, yeah. The, the, that's great. That is a really great high-level kind of thing to a signal mm-hmm. to sort mm-hmm. of look for. But can can that be sustained? And how 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 are they potentially going to be? attacked and threatened because, you know, as sure as night follows day, they will be. 
And and that's why, as I say, you need these whatever. It might be IP. It might be sort of legal and regulatory advantage. It might be uh, very strong network effects such as like Visa, Visa and MasterCard enjoy, or or, or or high switching costs, et cetera, et cetera. I want I want to spend a lot of time thinking about that because sure. if if I find companies that 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 have genuine every company likes to say it has a moat mm. these days, <laughs> but, but those that have a genuine moat, that's they right. Are, the, the advantage is is. Is, is is for all the things we discussed, they can maintain those high margins and and maintain decent market share, um, and just and just let others do what they what what they're going to do because they they are very hard to topple. Yeah, really, really good point. I like to the idea of if if we think about the, the the profitability of some of these companies and the marketplace they're in and the way they go about their business. Take take the bank. I mean. It, we like a bit of bank bashing here sometimes. You, you more than me, but I, I'm happy to indulge <laughs> as well. But it's not even bank bashing, right? Like if you think about, and Woolies and Coles was the same 20 years earlier. If you think about the growth of our banks, how have they grown? They've grown largely on the back of rising house prices that is unsustainable. They've grown on the back of interest rates falling to 0.1%, which we know, we always knew, but we know now absolutely is unsustainable. They will increase. It, grown through second incomes. Well, unless you're sending the kids down the coal mines, that that's going to stop there as well. And they've grown, and this is probably the more important structural one in this context, by buying or taking over growing market share at the expense of other businesses. Yep. The, the journey from 1980-ish to 2015 was that story. Yeah. 2016, 17 maybe, was that story, right? And that was an, structurally an overwhelmingly great scenario. Yeah. What happens is they become the market. Mm. So they go from these little guys, big costs, lot, not as much scale, all those macro factors I talked about, they spend 35 years benefiting from the macro, benefiting from scale, benefiting putting the other guys out of business from getting their, you know, growing their books and embracing technology. And then you get to 2000 and something, 16, 17, 18, and then onwards from there where they are the market. They are 85-ish percent, depending on what product you choose, of the market. The market's growing 2 or 3% mm. in terms of debt and profitability. So that, that maturing of that business to your point about extrapolation, this is the big point, right? If you just spent the last 35 years saying, look how great these are, the banks will obviously still be great business because they're high quality businesses. Mm. I'm not even saying they're not high quality businesses, but the growth and the quality things separate. We'll talk about that in a little bit of time too. Mate, let's move on to a few others. We've spent a bit of time on this and I love it because we've gone all over the waterfront and it's been a really interesting conversation. Speaking of uh, uh, expectations season, as I like to do rather than earning season, Treasury Wine Estates, I own shares in them as well. Uh, I think hopefully one of the last ones we talk about that I own, so I have to keep saying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, their profit was down, I think, 7.5%. And shares are up about 12% when they released earnings on Wednesday of this week. <laughs> and it's one of those situations where the market was this massive collective sigh of relief. Oh, thank God it wasn't worse. Oh, that's okay then. And it's just, again, it's one of those situations where you can't just say profit up, shares up, or profit down, shares down. Um, there are so many different things that move around. We've talked about this a lot. Uh, but if you, kind of, if you kind of break it up and look at the, the component parts of that, I really do think it's, it's just a reminder to investors that expecting linear relationships between profits and share prices in the short and medium term is a mistake. Mm. And if you'd been offered, you know, uh, I don't know, if someone said you, the treasury's gonna, treasury profits going to be down 7%, you want to buy or sell? Most people would say, well, sell, obviously. Or, you know, what do you think share price going to go down? What's going to be down, obviously? And it's just one of those stories where it doesn't take much for an undervalued, underloved company's shares to turn around and, and meaningfully kind of jump the other way. Oh yeah, 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 yep, yep. I mean, colleague, former colleague of ours, Joe Mega, always used to say you have to have a variant perception, right? Mm. The market, 
by virtue of the price that it's describing a business is based on a particular narrative, a particular outlook on average. There'll be a mix within that. But, but you know, if, you've, if you're going to – whether the, the result is good or bad, it just needs to be to a degree that's sufficient enough and different enough from the consensus. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you have to. You yeah. have you, yeah. it, it, Otherwise, at best, you get the average, right? Mm-hmm. And and if, so if you want you know, what the fundies call alpha, outperformance, yeah. Yeah. You, you have to have a different take on mm-hmm. on that outlook, or perhaps you could say you're at least looking over a different time frame. Which, by the way, I think is an incredible source of advantage for for private investors. I agree too. But quick segue: I read the other day that the average fund is uh, it, it, the average holding period is six months. Yeah, six Crazy months, guy. right? Crazy. And like these are the professionals, and they, they that's what that's the time frame they're looking at. And like yeah. it's a yeah. hard gig. I wouldn't. Try and do it. Maybe that's a little bit why, on average, they all tend to do pretty, uh, pretty ordinarily. But, yeah. but, but if you if you can sort of say, well, I'm looking at over the next three years, you're, you're, mm. the water's much clearer around you. <laughs> you know. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard, mate. I, I I I am much less critical of fundies than I used to be. Partly because I don't do it as a coincidence. Not not about that, but. It's exactly like you think about, like, man, that, how ridiculous. Why only six months? And the average fund manager client probably wants three months returns, right? If you, if you don't outperform over six months, if you're showing some sort of, the people are really itchy feet, well, maybe I should move my money to somewhere else. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a completely screwed up process, right? The whole idea of, and it's, and, it's, and it's chicken and egg and it's horse and cart and all those other metaphors. You know, do, do investors want short-term performance? That's what fund managers promise in part, yes. Um, we have plenty of people, like, I, I mentioned the other day, I think on this podcast, I had someone who wrote a nasty message on, I think it was Twitter, saying, oh, I bought one the stock you recommended and it went down, you're an idiot, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so you bought one stock. Yeah. Oh, and how long did you have? Oh, three weeks. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's everything we said not to do. Buy a diversified portfolio, buy lots of them, be long-term. And, and the response, and now I could do one or two things. I could either say, I guess I better try work harder on short-term performance so I keep these people around. Or you say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be long-term and, and hope that it justifies itself. But there's a real cost to that, right? There are members we get and then lose because we don't deliver short-term performance. If I was managing an amount of X dollars worth of money on behalf of a fund and those investors left me after three months, I'd show outflows and have to justify to my boss why I shouldn't get sacked because I, you know, mm. our fund's losing losing investor support and all that kind of stuff. Mm. It, is, it is a really, really screwy thing. The whole... The whole industry of investing, the whole kind of uh, you know facade or whatever, it's 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 just a weird, weird, weird world, and it's kind of born that way because everyone wants our performance. That's why you invest in individual stocks, otherwise you buy the ETF. So mm. you kind of you know you you, you choose you know dance with the one who bought you. You kind of you know you, you, this is the game you choose to play, but it is a really difficult one for us and for and for fundies. Yeah, where where I think a lot of them go wrong is that you kind of get the clients you deserve. Yeah, it's in, right. in in the sense that, like, if 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 you're if you're sort of playing to unrealistic expectations, <laughs> i.e., it will never yeah. go down. It will only always be sunny. You know, <laughs> there'll never yeah. be periods of underperformance, and and then and then you inevitably um, run through difficult periods, and people get upset. Yeah. You kind of deserved it. You kind of created a rod for your own back. <laughs> so there's yeah, a bunch of boot, there's a bunch of boutique fundies and stuff that I know who mm-hmm. like like anyone like Warren Buffett like I don't care who you are everyone yeah. goes through periods of underperformance yeah. but they've actually done pretty well in terms of fund flows 
because they've spent a lot of time nurturing their clients. Yeah. Not, you know, in, in, in basically just sort of saying, hey, when the times were good, Joe is another great example of this, mm-hmm. right? Lake House, mm-hmm. uh, um, Motley Fool Company, you know, did spend a lot of time when the times were good. They were really good saying it's not always going to be good, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, and and it's, it's sort of you you, you precondition. Um, I know you guys do the same kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. it's sort of it's it's really really important to do when you start playing to these unrealistic expectations. You, you just you get you get the outcomes you deserve. I think totally. And yeah. and so that if anyone out there is running a fund or thinking of starting one, I would say <laughs> invest a lot of time. Not to, it sounds so. It just sounds like an excuse. That's the hard part of it, though. But I think. Those people who are savvy enough and have been around long enough get get it right yeah. that this I am not buying you like yep, if you yep. want steady uh, returns, no chance mm-hmm. of a capital loss, buy yeah. some bonds, right? Because that's that's exactly <laughs> what you'll get. Term yeah. deposit, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But you'll also yeah. get incredibly ro- low returns if you want these really high returns. The cost of that is lots of volatility. The cost of that is long periods of sort of underperformance. But what really matters at the end of the day is 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 where you end up. And for those that that sort of are very clear in that messaging. Um, mm. They end up they end up benefiting a lot, I think, mm. by mm. by just being honest, forthright, realistic with their clients, and 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 owning up to when there are genuine mistakes, um, as opposed to just sort of suffering at the hands of short term trends. Mm. Mm. Do you think it's doable for a large fundies though? If you're a Magellan or a Platinum, no, or a it's not. No, that's the hard thing, right? Buffett's made the same thing in a different context about managing small amounts of money is easy, managing large amounts of money, your your ability to outperform just shrinks because your investable universe falls. I kind of wonder if it's the same thing when it comes to fund size in a different sense that oh, it is. you can't have every individual investor on seeing the same hymn sheet because they come to you a million different ways. And again, you make your own bed. So if you want to be big, then that's the that's the price you pay. But mm. it, it is a bit perverse at some level. Well, I think that's a big big part of the the secret of the success of, of the ETF, of the exchange-traded fund. Mm. Mm. Jack Bogle basically said, well, actually, all of these big funds are essentially hugging the index anyway. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. They're charging these insane fees. Yeah, yeah, let's just yeah. buy the index and let's charge yeah. next to nothing. Yeah. And, and you know, every single of these big fund managers jump up and down and it's like, oh, it's so unfair. And the rest is like, no, no. Again, this, this is back full circle to what we were talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just there, there was there was structural change there. There was there was a totally new way of doing things in a much yep. more superior way. Yeah. And and we've seen the consequences in terms of, of overall fund flows. The amount of money flowing into ETFs over the last 10 years has been legion. It's just absolutely insane. Mm. Uh, because because of that exact factor, so I I I I'm not I'm not having a look. If you've got some money with a big fund manager like a Colonial or something like that, then then fine. But understand the incentive structure that mm. these people are working yes. under. Yes. Understand that you're going to basically perform more or less in line with the with the mm. index, give or take a little bit, and you're probably going to be charged a fee that's not really commensurate with the effort and skill that's involved with that kind of stuff. Because again, you don't you don't need to be this whiz bang stock picker. You just basically need to create an index that's slightly differently <laughs> weighted to the overall yeah. and hope that the way the ones that you under underweight don't do as well and the ones you overweight do a little bit better. Yeah. And that 10 years later, you look back and the market's done 9.8% per year and, and you've done 10.1%. That's, that's kind of what you're looking for. Or so 9.3%. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. exactly, exactly. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. I, I want to talk about property for a second and, uh, and I want you to try and be, I want, no, I want you to try and be reasonably, you know, I'm biased here. Um, shocked I was uh, that domains 
uh, profit was up 25%. So think about residential property. But vicinity centres, one of those landlords I talked about before, they managed to increase profit by 8% over the last six months. And I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, share my internal thoughts at the moment. I was of the view, and I think still remain of view, but I need to check my assumptions, that the work from home, shop from home, online retail thing would can, would start to really cause some damage for these guys. The The idea of us not being out about as much, that will return to some degree, but maybe because we're working from home, not as much. The idea of working from home itself meant that, um, you know, we're just not, not in the same place as doing the same things. And online retail's growth meant that we simply weren't going to go to the shops as frequently. And I had pegged those things and I'd said, look, I'm not sure about the viable future of the mid-tier shopping centre. Westfield, I think, are destination shops. You're going to go for a day out. You'll go to a particular shop, try and a dress or a suit. You'll you know, go and see your friends, go and see a movie. That, I, can, I can say, I don't, I don't think the future is going to be super bright, but I think it's going to be pretty good. And I think they are the last to fall if that goes this way. But we've seen shopping centres close in the US or malls as they call them. And these mid-tier ones that aren't, aren't neighbourhood Woolies and Coles, it's not big regional destination centres like Westfield. They're kind of in, in between. And my view was, and I, I kind of think still is, but I said I need to check that assumption, that these guys were in some degree of potential trouble because of that change in behaviour. It doesn't seem like that's true, at least for the last six months. And I'm, I'm curious whether you have a, a different thought, an opposite thought, the same thought, or, or whether you've also thought about your assumptions on that basis. That's a good one. So, were you saying that just again, you're caught in the middle here with some of these these guys, and and that's what's making it tough for them? <sighs> well, that was my just articulate so, the point for me again. Sorry. So, my, my 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 thesis previously was that I see a future for the local cafe, supermarket, you know, uh, bakery, shopping centre, right? Because it's local, and it's easy, it's convenient. You go and grab something. I see a future for the big destination Westfields because they're days out. Mm. The guys that are in between that have the every person's, you know, three random reasonably sort of similar dress shops and a department store that's, you know, slowly losing business and there's no real reason to go there anymore. If you're going to go big, you go to Westfield. If you're going to go local, you go local. You're probably going to do the rest of it online anyway. And so my, my thought was these guys start to get their, their businesses drained away to the point where they become unviable. Oh, yes. And yet yeah. over the last six months, the reverse is true. At least, at least for those six months, vicinity centres, profit was up 8%. In a time mm. where I would have thought that would have been the toughest time for them with people not there, lockdowns, the kind of shadow lockdown of people was not going out. I was like, you know what? I would have expected to see these guys struggle a bit more than they did in the face of this stuff. And it might be a bounce back from the 2020 lockdown. So year on year, it just looks impressive because, you know, we're locked down a little bit less mm. or we just didn't, you know, we got back to the shops a little bit more. But I did expect to see these guys continue to bleed and, and I was surprised that the results are not spectacular results, but gee, if you're a retail landlord and you can grow your, your profit at 8% in, over the last six-month period, that's a pretty encouraging result, I guess. And I'm yeah. I'm wondering now whether my original assumption was wrong, whether it's just a delay. Uh, just curious if you have a thought about why these mid-tier landlords are still doing okay. Uh, man, so I'll, I'll confess I'm not I'm not familiar with those results. The, the, mm. the devil will be in the detail again yes, to, to, to use that. So it, it's a, it's a I'd be I'd be looking sort of sure what was the top line, but how mm. has everything sort of moved in between there and the <laughs> bottom line to sort of yeah. you know are, are there one off sort of factors in there or is there something that's more revealing? Yeah, help me out here. I've, I've gone blank on the name. Those those sort of. Um, the retail landlord that does the big box stuff, like the uh, boating, camping. B BWP? Aventus? Uh, 
maybe it's Aventus. Uh, Aventus, I think, is one you're thinking of, probably. Yeah, maybe it is. Uh, it, it is. It is. Sorry. Thank right. you. Thank you. Oh, it's been so long since I've looked at it. <laughs> um, I I actually think that they've they've got. If, they might not be the exact category that you're talking about there, but I, I think that's a good example of knowing very well where mm. their strengths lie and catering very much to that. I don't think a Westfield is going to compete with somewhere where I can go to a lot of these big box retailers, you know. So maybe it's got an ice skating rink, a laser tag, yeah, a BCF, a baby <laughs> warehouse. You know, yeah. they're, they're different. Yep, they're yep, very yep. big, big box retailer clients that they've got there. They're never going to- Baby f- warehouse, is that where you go and pick up a baby for just they, on the shelf in, in big <laughs> yeah. big box format, is that what you say? If you don't like sleep, then yeah, you can go, <laughs> go pick up one of those. I'll speak from experience. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Uh, but you know what I mean? So I actually, I actually yeah. think, I know this is a little- Adjacent to what you're sort of talking about there, but I think no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good it's a good point because they've mm. got a they've they've identified this space in the market that is actually the other guys are not going to touch. Um, yeah, right. So yeah. in the ones that you, again, I'm not familiar with the ones that, that, that you're talking about there, but mm. I, I do. I, I wonder if it where the mistakes there come where they sort of say, hey, let's open up something next to a Westfield. Um, that's a really <laughs> yeah. dumb idea. Yeah, but yeah, maybe yeah. they're in some certain centres where that's just not a viable proposition for at least, mm. you know, at least the foreseeable future kind of thing. And though while mm. it, it lacks a lot of advantages on paper, they've just got enough of a catchment in that space to, to the, they, they can defend their own little territory. Of course, there's questions mm-hmm. around growth mm-hmm. and how expansion works and all the rest of that. But sheer scale does a lot of the heavy lifting. Yeah, I just want to look. I guess that's, they're the parts that I'd be sort mm-hmm. of looking at. Where are the actual assets? What, 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 what competition lies near? What potential competition lies near? How is it that you're distinguishing and differentiating yourself within all of that? They, they'd kind of be the kind of questions I would sort of look to dig into to, to answer the, the very question you're asking. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I have to apologise. I just don't, I don't know them well enough to, to speak authoritatively on that one though. No, it's, it's all good, mate. It's all good. Um, plenty of other earnings besides. We had Telstra, Transurban, Star, NetWealth. I won't spend too much time. NetWealth I thought was interesting, mate, because – uh, it hurt the whole industry, actually. It hurt, it, it, Hub 24 was down. There was a few down on, on the results. Uh, NetWealth, the the numbers aside, or not the numbers aside, I guess, but what was most interesting, they talked about the war for talent and the cost of talent. And so we talked about inflation before. If you're a high-margin uh, software business, uh, normally you're at a pretty good place and NetWealth should be one of those. But when your major cost ongoing is the cost of the programmers and people whose job it is to sell your product, market your product, write your, your coding, your code. Um, that that was really interesting, mate. And the shares fell like 10% on the news of, and it's largely a higher cost issue. And then the rest of the industry, as I said, because of a, 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 both the cost of and a lack of available talent, um, just an interesting kind of 2022 experience. Again, as much as we'll talk about inflation, interest rates a lot. Um, that you know, the, the downside for businesses of low unemployment, it's it's a it's a nice problem to have socially and for Australia. But the downside is they're just not being able to find enough people, and when they find them, they're having to pay through the nose to get them to come and join. It's it's actually a, a very broad phenomenon. We, we've had a mm. few um, CEOs of tech companies come along and give some talks to to straw man members. All right, and and they've absolutely said said that it just mm. there has never been a better god if i had my time again i would have studied <laughs> programming <laughs> yeah <laughs> because yeah. because it is on one hand it's kind of like there's a lot of developers programmers out there mm. but at the same time um really really high quality ones are actually pretty yeah. rare and people yeah. value value that as well so they have the pick of of where they want to work and, and if you mm. want to attract them and then retain them, you've got to look after them really, really, really well. The balance of power, if you're, 
if you're a very lo- unskilled kind of worker, you, you've got no bargaining power. It's it's one it's one of these real tragedies and problems of society. Is like some of these these people are just fulfill what we called, you know, uh, critical yeah. workers in the pandemic. Yeah. Ironically, are also the, the lowest paid, and and mm-hmm. the dynamic there is again one of one of sort of supply and demand. But in this high skilled area of development where there is just a huge and it feels we feel as though we're late in the game here with software and technology and the rest of it we're so early days mm-hmm. and 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 these high quality people are very very hard to find um and they can they they can work google and sit on a beanbag all day and get paid a billion dollars <laughs> and a whole bunch of options shares options yeah, and yeah, performance yeah. shares it's it's just super 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 hard and yeah. i think that we will see a lot of uh cost pressures on terms of staff costs mm. for this kind of stuff um mm-hmm. it's it's a problem and and and, and I, it's something i'm it's something i expect we all anyone who's in, in this in this space needs to factor in increasing costs not just because of headcount but yeah. because of because of what you need to pay and and frankly although the market will probably be not not like that i, I think it's the right the right move is mm. to is to pay over to get very high quality people mate i can speak oh, from it first hand in terms of straw yep. man we we ha- yep. we've went through a range of different developers some are really cheap per hour some mm. are really expensive per hour the guys that were super expensive per hour were actually the cheapest overall <laughs> because I didn't have to fix up all these yeah. mistakes and yeah. all this massive <laughs> nightmare, you know. Exactly. Just, and, and, and so I think if you've got a good quality team, you pay up for mm. them because mm. they are when they walk out the door, you're in big trouble. Yeah. And even if you do find someone else that's going to take a while to find them, it, it, you're probably going to end up having to pay more for them anyway. Then it's going to take them six months to bring themselves up to speed, and then they could leave at the drop of a hat too. After all of that investment as well. So you know, you, it, it is it is unfortunate in 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 that sense that there's going to be these cost pressures. Mm-hmm. But I, I at least with some of the executives I've spoken to, I think they really get that. Although it's disappointing, it is absolutely mm-hmm. a very justifiable and worthwhile expense to take on the chin because mm-hmm. it, as, as unattractive as it is, it's far more attractive than being left talentless. Yes. I guess the, the challenge, of course, is you need to have a business model that can sustain those higher costs, which goes back to the margins we talked about before. <laughs> and we're all, uh, it, all, it all goes around in circles. Yep. Mate, um, <clears throat> let, let's go to a couple of... So I want to conclude with a couple of conversations, a couple of topics that we've talked about before in terms of... Or so already, but, but to bring them back to a very specific case. Talk about scale, talk about competition, talk about disruption, all that kind of stuff. And I have to go back to coal. Um, we've talked about AGL, bringing forward the closure of its coal plants and we've waxed pretty lyrical. I hope if any of our listeners still have <laughs> have uh, investments in energy generation, they've at least done it with their eyes open because news out on Thursday morning, we do record Thursday morning, so today, um, that Origin is going to bring forward the closure of one of its coal power plants to 2025, a full five years earlier than was previously planned. Again, because this continues the trend that is... Relatively straightforward, relatively obvious uh, that baseload generation from high cost, high ongoing cost, high recurring cost uh, plants like coal is simply not competitive at the moment with the combinations of renewables, a little bit of gas and a whole lot of household solar, which is just dramatically changing the the space. So I don't have a, a whole lot to add necessarily. I still don't like Origin. I don't like AGL. I wouldn't buy shares in any of them. They're horribly commoditized businesses in both generation and retail. Um, in structural I, you know, decline. 
Well, the, the coal in particular, I mean, they can probably, here's the thing, even if they manage to turn themselves into renewable powerhouses, that renewable energy is still going to be a commodity product. So I still, I still wouldn't yeah. invest in it either way. I think you know, that's what I also want to be careful of. I mentioned this on Twitter. Um, and someone said, yeah, well, but renewable investments. I'm like, renewable still sucks, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we're doing it at, at a social level, but it's still going to be a commodity solution, right? Because everyone's going to eventually do solar and wind and whatever else. And at that point, we're going to have exactly the same problem where it's a commodity production, generation and commodity sale or resale. Um, so again, I don't have a strong new view other than another foot has fallen, another shoe has fallen. This is the future of energy generation. Mm. And I just think, again, I've said so many times, regardless of your view on, on the science, and Andrew now says, well, the science is pretty clear and I agree with him. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll get I'll Honestly, let me, let me be more blunt, mate. <laughs> like, if, if, you, if you were sitting here in 2022 still yeah. sort of questioning this, you just mm-hmm. need to really have a good luck, hard look in the mirror. It's not an ideological debate, you know. This is, mm-hmm. this is a fact evidence-based kind of thing. When you have huge um, generators closing this down. Origin isn't doing this for the good of the planet. They're doing it because of the brutal, hard, cold economic reality of it. So you're investing real money here that you've worked very hard to save over the years. And if you're going to invest on a really poorly founded ideological bent, good luck to you, but it's probably not very smart. There's some These, these guys know which way the wind is blowing and, and you, need to, you need to pay attention to that is all I'll say. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, that, I think that's it. You know, when you see a, a trend, <laughs> you, you know, it, it, it pays a lot more to, to look focus on the facts and the reality of what's doing. Um, either way, no matter your ideological perspective, the same with politics, same with everything else, right? Uh, follow the money is, is a pretty good slogan yeah. when it comes to investing. And again, it's also possible to have a different view on investing than you do on, on the morals of it, right? I wish it was worth investing in renewable energy companies, but it's not. I've talked about ethical investing before and, and, and I have a slightly different view, but you know, I, I, I wish it was true. I don't think it is. Uh, those things can absolutely be true at the same time and being able to separate those concepts uh, and, and have a different application of them, I think is really important. Mate, um, let's also speak to CSL because it released its numbers. Profit was roughly flat. Now, pandemic influenced or, or, or impacted. This is a business that went backwards profit-wise has a five-year earnings growth rate of about 9%, maybe a three-year growth rate. I can't remember if I looked up some numbers the other day. So, you know, okay. A P is 40. That is a lot of faith, a lot of hope, a lot of expectation. A very high price, probably two and a half times the long-term market average PE for the market. Probably growing faster than the market average, so it probably deserves some sort of premium. But for a very, very, very large business, arguably relatively mature, though there's always chance for innovative um, discovery and, and, and maybe there are, you know, meaningful futures for this. But there is, I struggle to put those two numbers together. Mm. Growth of not nothing last year and 9% over the last three or five years, whatever it was, a P year 40, what am I missing? Well, potential, so I, the bet here is, is a combination of two main things, really. It's sort of like what's the the, the pace of earnings growth that they can st- sustain over a material uh, portion of time, and what's the market likely to pay for that? So what's what's interesting about CSL? I'll put my hand up and say I I agree. I think it's one of the best businesses out there. Phenomenal Australian success story. I think they've actually got I think they've got quite a few years of very decent growth. It's been pretty mediocre recently. I'm just having a look at the consensus forecasts at the moment. So we're sort of 
2021, what did we get? 684 a share uh, earnings, but they're calling for about 970 in 2024. Now, analysts can be wrong and often are, but let's just take take that at face value. That's that's pretty decent growth. Um, so if they get that growth and, and here's the, the key one, the market multiple remains high, you're going to get a great return. You are, but 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 yeah. where and, and this yeah. is, and this is your point. The 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 danger here is is that the comp well there's 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 the really bad scenario where that earnings growth doesn't look nearly as good, and the the price earnings multiple that the market ascribes this company goes from forty to twenty five. That's 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 being squeezed at two ends. There, it's going to be a it's going to uh, make a significant difference to the to the share price. But even if the earnings growth is even if net profit on a per share basis is 50% higher in three years than it is today, right. but the price earnings goes from 50, 40 to 20. Exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah, what I mean? you say, right. there's a business You're connect. Still You're yeah. still back. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. again, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe the, the bulls will say yes, but why would the PE be so low for a business mm. that's delivering mm. so strongly? And it, very good mm. point. Maybe, mm. maybe you're right. Maybe that's too mm. too ambitious, too pessimistic rather to, to assume that. But I, I always I said to you before, I'm always loath to be dependent on the market being in a buoyant mood for me to get a good return. Because I don't, I have no idea what the market sentiment is going to be like three, four, five years out. I don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow. So I like businesses where I feel as though there's there's definitely good potential for earnings growth, but at the same time, the market's just not paying much for that. So the potential is is that in the future, it's still market's still a bit meh in terms of its its valuation. But but I get I get lifted up by the earnings growth. And potentially the market actually goes, mm. oh, this is actually really great. It's the best returns mm-hmm. I've ever made have actually been a combination of the two. Strong earnings growth and then the market finally cottoning on to this is a fantastic company. And, and now actually I don't know why we were prepared mm. to only pay 15 times earnings. Now we'll pay 30 yeah, times yeah, earnings. Exactly. exactly. So there's, there's a double right there and then a double on on, on top of whatever extra earnings growth mm. you can get. Mm. So mm. that's my caution with, with C, CSL. I feel as though there's, reason, there's reasonably decent – reasons to expect ongoing earnings growth. Look, th- mm. this is a, let me tell you the exact number here. This is a $127 billion company. So mm. it's going to be mm. very difficult for them to grow anything like 20% per annum on a sustained basis. Mm. But they can probably grow it up a single digit rates and maybe there'll be some some periods of, uh, where there's a bit of acceleration. For example, a big acquisition recently, blah, 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 blah. But I would be a, I would be a much more enthusiastic buyer if I was getting this at a point where the market happened to be in a little bit of a funk, because it just takes away that that risk of sentiment change on the market. Yeah, I think that's right. And this kind of goes back to my bank. I, there are some people who have a really strong, well thought through rationale for CSL, which justifies a PE of 40, right? Mm. And, but you have to believe either either the growth, you can you can tell a story that the growth is going to be high and compounding for a very long period of time, and that's why a PE of 40 is justified. Um, and that, 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 that's how you do it. You say, well, okay, well, this is going to happen. Or you have to hope, as you say, fingers crossed that no one pays less for CSL anytime soon because this Im- implied quality continues to be the case. Mm. But again, look back at the banks. For a lot, for decades, they were quality, unbeatable, blah, blah, blah. In the last five years, nothing. Just absolutely terrible. NAB share price down 10% over five years. Mm. And the market's grown over that time. So the, the, the gap between those two is phenomenal. Yeah. Even if you allow for, for dividends, it probably narrows the gap a little bit. But, you know, the, these so-called great businesses that never put you wrong and they've been great for such a long time. When someone says, I, I like CSL because such a high-quality business. Like, great. I, I, I love that too. But as we said earlier, paying twice for quality. It's a quality mm. business. Therefore, it's got lots of profit. Therefore, that's great. 
So you pay a decent price for that profit. Well, so just looking at NAB when you mentioned them, um, Comsec has a little table in there. It'll give you the average annual price earnings ratio for a business over any given year. So back in 2014, it was about 16 times. Uh, last year, it was 13 times. Now, you know, think about that in terms of the percentage difference from 13 to 6. That, that, that is, that is a, a pretty reasonable contraction that, 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 that is in that. At the same time, if you go mm. back over the same period, CSL typically, yes, it always traded at a high-ish multiple and it was a different mm-hmm. interest rate environment, rah, 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 rah. Yeah. But it was yeah. sort of, you're sort of looking at something around 20, 25 at that period. And now mm-hmm. it's 40. So that's so that's that's why shareholders have done so incredibly well. As I said, gro- good earnings growth with the market prepared to pay more and more for, for every dollar of earnings. That's but but trees don't grow to the sky. So earnings can, in theory, go up very aggressively for a very long, long time. Multiples can't. You just you know you you, you can't go you can't double your PE over a seven year period and then double it again and then double it again. Like at some point, financial reality and gravity sort of, sort of kicks in. That is very much what you'd call a mean reverting um, number. <laughs> it just, it is whatever is happening with the underlying business. It's it's never going to be something where that just continues to go up and up and up and up and up. It's always going to sort of hover around a kind of uh, uh, average figure, and that is the challenge. That is the challenge with a business like CSL at the moment. Put the quality aside. Put the potential earnings growth aside. You are buying it at the top of a multiple cycle, if I can call it that which doesn't mean that you can be wrong. You can still do well. Multiple might stay high and the earnings growth come through and you do exceptionally well. But but if if that isn't true, it's going to offset a very significant part of that earnings growth. And it's going to, I doubt you'll ever lose much money over the long term in a business like that. You'll probably never lose any money, but it could, it could certainly mean that your average returns are, are much more ordinary than what you'd otherwise expect. Yeah, I think that's probably, that's probably a nice way to put it. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just tough to know where the, where the top of the market is. Maybe we've, filled up our time. Will you come back on Sunday? You know it. Absolutely. Beautiful. If you do want to take part in our mailbag episode, the only way to do it, we don't take callers. You have to let us know in advance. Jump onto our socials. Andrew is at sage underscore Simeon and at strawman invest. You can get me on, that's only on Twitter, of course. You can get me on Twitter and Instagram at TMF Scott P or The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. And on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash Scott Phillips Money or slash The Motley Fool Australia. If you want to email us, you can do that. Our member services team will make sure your question comes to us. Just let them know it's a question for the podcast. That's info, I-N-F-O, at fool.com.au. Until then, see you Sunday. Fool on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.